Ladies and gents, welcome back. Welcome back to Engineers. I was just saying to these two folks here, actually, this is our uh, first podcast of uh, 2021. So prepare for some dodgy haircuts from myself and we've got some new headphones. So we're with Index Labs. We've got Clinton and Riyadh here who are going to take us through a little bit about some of their journey and uh, working on things like Football Index. We're going to talk about some of the architectures and just dive a little bit deeper into that. So stay with us 40 minutes or so and listen to what these guys and girls are building. So Riyadh, do you want to give us an intro into you? Tell us who you are. Your role at Index Labs and Clinton, next couple of moments, we'll come on to you as well. Yeah, sure thing. Thanks, thanks Elliot. Yeah, um, so yeah, my name is Riyadh Jaffa. I'm uh, Head of Front-End Engineering at Index Labs. Um, I've been with the company for, I think it's coming up to nine months now. Um, and yeah, so far, so good. I've loved every minute of it. But yeah, that's me for now. Thanks. Nice. Clinton? Hi, I'm Clinton Alexander. Um, I'm the head of backend engineering at Index Labs, and I joined Index Labs about March last year, just as the lockdown began. So about, I think it's about 10 months now. Cool. Nice to meet you both. So as we picked up in the, um, or actually offline, you've got a Football Index uh, t-shirt on, Riyadh. So should we, should we separate the two for the audience for a bit of understanding? So who are Index Labs? Uh, talk to us about that relationship with Football Index and I guess tell us a little bit about the mission as well. Sure thing. Yeah, absolutely happy to. So um, I'll start with Football Index, actually. Um, so, yeah, Football Index uh, is a, a fixed odds betting platform uh, where you can buy and sell shares in footballers for real money. Um, okay. We currently have apps for the web, Android and iOS, which, of course, we can kind of cover in a bit more depth later on. Um, but yeah, talking about Index Labs, who are the company that, that we work for, we're, that, that's the, the technical arm of the business, um, yeah. which itself runs uh, and, and maintains Football Index as a platform. Yeah. Um, so it's our job, it's Index Labs' job um, and ours within it uh, to make sure that the platform remains stable, scalable, performant, that kind of thing. Nice. And also, of course, to, to implement the, you know, the exciting new features that product come to us with and, and uh push the technology of the platform itself forwards as well. Yeah. I might catch you off guard here, but do you work on any other products as well? It seems like you're an incubator style business, if I've got that right. Um, uh, kind you... of, yeah. Yes and no. So I, again, we, we can kind of cover some of the other stuff that we're going to be working on going forwards. We've got another platform actually, which we're working on called Hadron, which has been kind of discussed um, in, in other podcasts that we've been featured in, but also, um, I believe it's also been mentioned in a few technical uh, pieces on uh, on the internet and various bits of bump and, and that marketing have been putting out. Um, I mean, in a nutshell, yes, we absolutely do intend on on pushing the boundaries in terms of um, potentially uh, other markets. Let's say I don't know how much I'm allowed to give away at this point, but um, it's uh, yeah, we're certainly going to be pushing the platform onwards and upwards. At the moment, it's a, a as I mentioned, you know, fixed odds betting platform. It's quite akin to uh, fintech, okay. um, financial technology, that kind of thing. So, you know, if you if you've if you're familiar with buying and selling shares, 
Um, yep. Chances are you'll probably be fairly familiar with with how the platform works itself. Um, it's based fundamentally in the UK right now, okay. um, but that that won't necessarily be the case in uh, you know in the months to come. We're we're looking to push that further out. Um, and yeah, we've got quite a lot on our plate, um, which I suppose Clinton will be able to talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, some, some of the back end work there. But certainly, you know, there's a replatforming project, which we're both part of, um, which is, you know, really pushing us forwards and, and, and creating, as I say, this more kind of scalable architecture. Nice. OK, Clinton, tell us a little bit about that and tell us a little bit about um, Riyadh mentions. Uh, it's a little bit reflective of a financial environment and you need to build something that's scalable and reliable. Let's not go in the deep end just yet. Let's kind of ease you in a little bit, but talk to us a little bit about um, what back end looks like for you and maybe some challenges that come with that. So the existing back end, which we started building about five years ago, I believe, is built in Node.js. It was built originally as a monolith. So the scalability there has been obviously quite limited. Okay. Uh, originally hosted on Heroku and migrates to AWS recently. The scalability sort of has been a serious problem for us. The performance, the cost, and all that kind of, and even the maintainability of the platform have been limited. Um, and we have obviously noticed this, especially the engineers, but also the business have recognized that the speed of engineering wasn't at the speed we wanted it to be at. Okay. So it's about a year and a half ago now, I think a new CTO was hired in um, to sort of change the situation and fix all the problems we had. Yeah. The CTO then hired a new head of engineering who is the um, current, I, can't, okay, I don't know if I can say that, but basically uh, Michele um, joined yeah. the company and birth project had drawn from his mind as it were. And Hadron is a re-architecting of the platform with distributed systems and sort of event sourcing and other sort of very important technologies for scalability just baked straight in from the design from the beginning. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the lay of the land right now. Uh, in terms of languages, the existing platform is written in Node.js with a bit of Java on the side. Yeah. The new platform is in Kotlin. Um, everything's Dockerized and we use Kubernetes for our deployments. So that's sort of the, the easy tech stack stuff to talk about. How how tough is a re-architecture? How, how tough is something like that? And, and some of the things, let's go with some of the things, what, what do you need to consider or think about? There's a couple of things. So we're quite lucky with Hadron. Hadron is not necessarily a re-architecting. It's actually a re it's not a rewrite either. It's a whole separate and new product. Okay. So the existing football index platform is never going to be migrated to this Hadron product. It may be, may be replaced by it, and maybe some of the data might get migrated, but we're never going to sort of try and incrementally go from the old platform to the new one. We're, yeah. sold, we're only building Hadrons as a separate concern. So we don't have to worry about those intermediate steps that typical migrations have to concern themselves with. Okay. We're doing a lot of those in the old platform at the moment, actually, to try and make it better for because it's going to survive for a year maybe two from now so we have to make sure it's at least maintainable so it doesn't take all of our engineers time so with that in mind we don't have some of the traditional concerns you have with a complete re-architecting we're actually building something new okay um, the, the key aspects of hadron that make it different from football index the we're going to call it football index because it's we don't have another name for the product that Football Index currently is. But Fine. just when I say Football Index here, I mean the Node.js monolith. Cool. Um, and when I say Hadron, I mean 
this will be deployed in any other region that we choose to as a business like uh, move into mm, so let's say hypothetically i'm actually going to pick a country move to mars and we want to make a mars ball uh, uh sort of a subsidiary of the company yeah then the hadron is going to be deployed there and yeah. a key aspect of that re-architect is well the ability to do that you know re just deploying it rapidly in any new market we want to deploy it into so it's fairly so, universal really and you can just yeah. i guess localize it to each language in each country you've just built something Lo solid yeah. and just push it out yeah localization is at the core of what we're doing we have yeah. to it, it's very important and authentication has to be quite pluggable or reusable um, all, all aspects of the system have to be considered for all combinations. So obviously think about regulations, right? Yeah. In, in, so our compliance department are fantastic and they do a lot of work for our English branch. I say, sorry, no English, uh, United Kingdom branch, sorry. Um, <laughs> so they do fantastic work for that. Um, and that work though is not really transferable to say, pick a random country, Japan, right? It's not transferable to Japan, for example. So for that reason, the platform itself, also the regulation requirements of the system the business logic is going to be different in japan as well so we need to build a system that we can plug different services or different messaging um and routing in basically between the microservices to ensure that we can have the same sort of rough platform design but somehow take the compliance code and replace it with a different microservice or different co-paths or however we choose to do it which we can discuss later on uh, yeah. in hadron nice Let's discuss that later on. Um, Riyad, I want to talk to uh, you a little bit about that, I, I guess, customer journey. You know, we touched on uh, different markets there, if you like. C can we understand a customer journey and what that means for you and the front end team? Yeah, sure thing. So I mentioned earlier on, obviously, we've, we have kind of three kind of fundamental, uh, let's say, parts to the front end platform. Yeah. Um, we have a web with three apps really is the best way to put it. So we've got a, a web app, an Android app, and an iOS app. Um, at the moment, those are all built using kind of the native technologies, which you'd expect. Um, going forwards as part of how we keep mentioning Hadron, yeah, obviously you can tell we're quite excited about this kind of moving forward. So we're going to, it's oh going to keep coming up. It'll probably be quite a common theme. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, as things stand right now, as uh, uh, Clinton touched on just now, so we, we have kind of, Everything's sort of based on on Node. Uh, a, lot, a lot of our uh, the backend technologies is, is based on Node. Um, kind of current LTS, you know, usual standard stuff. Um, we're using React, you know, very uh, latest version of React. Um, that's all hosted on AWS with Redux for state management, RESTful communications between the front end, back end, that kind of thing. And in terms of the mobile apps, um, you know, iOS is a Swift app. Um, Android is kind of a, a bit of a mix of Kotlin and Java. So, and you know, obviously the iOS side of things, you do end up working a little bit, a very small amount in Objective C. So, there's there's quite a lot you can hear just purely from yeah, the, yeah. the amount that I've had to say there. There's a lot of different technologies there, and as a result, you know, you end up as a business, as a technical business, you know, you, you end up having to do um, an awful lot of hiring. Um, that in and of itself, it, it can be quite tricky, you know, to find the right people who have uh, an understanding of, of, uh, of at least a good few of these technologies. Yeah. Um, we've ourselves as a business re recently grown quite a bit and, and uh, we found also through that growth um, other ways of working, which 
you know, we'll, we'll probably touch on in, in a moment, I suppose, in, in terms of uh, mobbing and pairing. Um, but through doing that, you know, we found good ways of being able to, to share an understanding and, and, and find good ways of working, which means that we can communicate effectively, collaborate well, yep. um, but also kind of train each other up a little bit. Um, but the tricky part of that, I suppose, still always boils, boils down to, and you always end up coming back to that whole, you know, the ideal uh, circumstance, if you like, as a developer, which you would you would hope for, is that you don't that the, the any platform you build is not just uh, you know uh, uh, easily uh, uh, maintainable, hopefully, um, but also that there is that kind of easy transfer of skills, so that people who are working on different parts of the platform um, can hopefully help each other out, and different teams can kind of chip in and out of different bits, and and so that the business themselves have less kind of friction in terms of getting things to market. Um, and doing that on all of these different technologies, it, it's quite a, you know, it can be quite a tricky thing. Um, up to now, we've managed it very well. Going forward with Hadron, we're kind of looking for, um, you know, that that kind of silver bullet, hopefully, where we've got that single code base um, using uh, React Native, uh, where essentially we're, we're able to kind of write once, deploy many. Um, we're not quite there yet in terms of the Hadron project itself. It's very much ongoing. It's still, you know, quite young. But we're, we've made, we've we've kind of bitten off enough that, and we've got far enough down the line that we feel confident that we're going to be able to achieve pretty much what we set out to do, which is create something which you know any one of our teams can work on with ease. Um, we can deploy it and maintain it very easily, um, and hopefully that will mean then you know a much more robust and stable front end for our customers. And I've just realized I haven't actually answered the question that you posed to me, which is what does a customer journey sound like? I'll answer that really, really quickly then. So I'll actually ask the question very quickly. Um, so yeah, so in other, I, I gave all that to kind of give some context, I suppose. No, good. I love it. Um, so in terms of the usual user journey, so Football Index, as, as a rule of thumb, um, we have a really fantastic marketing department um, and they work very closely with product obviously to 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 really push the word out um, you'll probably maybe some of your listeners will have seen our, our logo uh, the football index logo on various uh, various football matches various grounds um, we sponsor team we sponsor a team and, and there's a you know a good good amount of marketing that goes out there so people end up finding us either via the app or via the website mm-hmm. um, and when they Log in first, log in. Obviously, they'll have a registration journey. They'll have to go through various checks because obviously, you know, we are uh, fundamentally a, a, a above and beyond all else. We are a gambling company. So we have to make sure, you know, and, and Clinton rightly did a name check on, on the compliance team earlier on. They, they do a, an absolutely amazing job of making sure that our customers get well looked after. You know, we have, uh, I think it's, at last time I looked at it, I think we've got about eight or nine different checks um, that we do. Um, not just around making sure people are at least over 18, but there's things like GamStop and uh, Gambling Commission that, that that come into play as well. And we we have to make sure, you know, that we're being responsible uh, uh, custodians of, of this product, right? As Not just technically, but also, you know, from a humanity point of view, we want to make sure that our customers are well looked after. And, and uh, as a gambling platform, that's actually law as well, you know. Um, yeah. So the user will come on. They'll register, they'll go through these various checks and provided all goes well, kind of the happy path, if you like, um, they'll end up on our platform where they can, uh, as I mentioned earlier on, you know, they can buy and sell or they can offer and bid on shares. 
Um, those shares, the share price, I mentioned earlier on, you know, it's, it's very similar to any other trading platform um, or it kind of has a, a similar model, let's say, to a trading platform. Um, I mean, I won't go, I, sh I probably shouldn't, in fact, go into too much detail on, on this podcast in terms of how those are calculated, but there's a, yeah. there's a, there's quite a lot of good documentation that we've got. So if you go footballindex.co.uk, if you're more interested, your listeners will be able to, to, to read more about it, but it's essentially VWAP, which means volume weighted average price, which is a yeah, pretty standard way that, uh, shares, uh, uh, our share price gets calculated. Users can buy and sell these shares. They get paid dividends based on you know various nice. factors to do with match day play, media mentions, that kind of thing. Um, I mean that's that's all very high level, you know. Um, but the idea being that you know we have a very active and, and enthusiastic uh, customer base, um, which we're obviously very grateful for. They give us some fantastic feedback, which we work through, and we try and add new features and new bits of functionality as and where we can to to try and you know um, to keep keep things fun, I guess, really for our customers and make sure that, you know, they're, they're getting what they want and what they need from, from the product. Product's great. Uh, I, I see it plastered over Twitter <laughs> all the time um, in a positive yeah. way, by the way. Um, <laughs> and I, I couldn't quite believe that something like this existed when uh, I was having a curry with one of my mates and he showed me what he was getting up to. And I was just like, wow, okay, I really didn't realize this is a couple of years ago that this was going on. And obviously I saw your journey and you touch on a couple of points in there actually around um, collaboration, everyone coming at a code base from the same angle and working together. And uh, I wanted to ask you that because we, we have spoken offline about this, Clinton, and spoken to um, Michelle as well. So uh, this idea of, I think it's orchestration moving to choreography and just understanding that mindset and understanding how you collaborate and what actually drove that collaboration or change. Can we just hear that a little bit more? Because I think this will be a good learning experience for a lot of people if they're thinking about different ways of working. Sure. Uh, just one brief correction, by the way. It's Michele, not Michelle. Oops. Yeah, it's okay. That's fine. Uh, you can edit that bit out if you want. Um, so as for the orchestration versus... Um, let me restart that, sorry. Orchest so as for orchestration versus choreography and the sort of collaboration aspects of the company, they're two... We, they're kind of separate things, right? They came from the same person, same sort of push to change the engineering department, but they actually could be done independently. You don't necessarily need the way of working to do the new architecture, and you don't necessarily need the architect to do the new way of working. Okay. It just so happens they came at the same time. So I could talk about the new way of working first, um, let, or let, I could talk yeah. about the architecture first. What do you yeah. reckon? Let's talk about the architecture because... Um, Sorry, I thought the architecture necessarily uh, changed the ways of working. So I think that might be my misinterpretation. Let's talk about architecture first, and it could yeah, sure. have changed. I think that I think that our new way of working does, in general, which we'll talk about later, improve right. engineering performance for the kind of company that we are, startup, mostly senior engineers. Uh, but we'll talk about that after this. As the architecture, so a big change that we did with Hadron, which I'm just going to do a new architecture Hadron, is moving towards the event source, the event log being the source of truth. In this case, we're using Kafka, I think. Yeah, we're using Kafka. So 
the, that is the source of truth. We are not using our databases as source of truth in this case. Okay. So traditional model with most micro, in most architectures, microservice or not, you have your databases um, per service or per monolith uh, or multiple databases per monolith more typically. That, that those databases represent the final ultimate you know source of truth. If it says John is you know has ten pounds, John has ten pounds. That's it. Yeah. Right. Whereas we've gone towards a model where every message into Kafka is stored indefinitely, and that log should be and can be and had John replayable to rebuild the entire system in the event of a complete and utter failure of one of the databases, for example. Let's just say uh, the databases for payment history got completely eradicated for whatever reason, um, you know, maybe a tsunami hits the data center. Although I don't think AWS, I think AWS has multiple region backups, but anyway, let's pretend for a second that can happen. Um, so in that case, um, we can rerun the entire log from Kafka. Uh, well, sorry, we can have that service reread the entire log from Kafka and rebuild its database from there. As long as we're not rerunning side effects, we should be fine. Although we do obviously do idempotency checks. So that may actually even not be a problem actually. Um, but basically, it's kind of like I think Cassandra database has a similar replaying from history to rebuild the uh, to rebuild the history. Though I'm not entirely sure. I shouldn't actually anything I say Cassandra to delete that. That was bad. Uh, <laughs> I actually don't know Cassandra very well. So um, yeah, so basically replaying the history to rebuild the database. Um, there's more be benefits than just that, but that's sort of the main the main fundamental change of our new system is the event log being the source of truth. Um, and this obviously consequentially has massive impacts on the ways we build our system. So no longer is our databases the absolutely most important thing. And simultaneously, asynchronicity is the most important thing. Yep. So all systems have to now be asynchronous at all points, apart from maybe right at the boundaries. But even then, we've gone with async models, which React can talk more about between front end and back end. I'm fairly unknowledgeable about that part, so I won't even try. Um, so. I think most engineers listening will have been used, uh, probably have done some asynchronous work with asynchronous systems, uh, distributed systems potentially even. And yeah. the term I'm going to really drop in now is a uh, eventual consistency. Okay. I think that term came from Amazon. I'm not entirely sure. Don't quote me on that from AWS. It's the first time I ever heard it anyway. Uh, eventual consistency is one of, in my opinion, the hardest things, apart from maybe other concurrency concerns, to sort of teach people to get into the mindset of not okay. just the engineers but also product and also the customers to a degree even. So the first time you ever probably used AWS, if you ever used it like directly through the UI, you create a server and you don't get stuck in a loading bar. You don't get any of the kind of old fashioned thing. The server eventually appears, eventual consistency. Maybe it doesn't sometimes, there are failures. So with the, this is sort of the same for our services and all sort of eventual consistency services is that you may do an action on a UI mm -hmm. or a time-based action that comes from a cron job, for example, that action won't be synchronous. It will eventually be propagated through Kafka, read off the key, read off the log, um, and then processed, and then may trigger more events that then cause other services to do something. So a user could, you know, do an action, and it might not be immediately obvious that use the action is completed. Okay. Um, although we're obviously going to build things in place to make the user experience better, which again Riyab will talk about. Yeah. From the back end perspective, that action. While once the user's request is finished, may not have finished its actual job, right? It, it may be going off and doing a payment or doing other things or um, writing to databases still. And the user won't still be transparent, hopefully, to our users. Yeah. But for the engineers, this is quite complex because now, rather than the sort of um, 
uh, rather than the model where you use microservices communicating via HTTP synchronously, where you service A calls service B and service B calls C and D and writes to a database at the same time, which necessarily requires fairly thin, sort of very, sorry, very short paths to your final terminal actions, yeah. because obviously the round trip time would be incredible. Or you can do asynchronously at the boundary there and then have that happening behind the scenes anyway. But even then, you don't have service A calls B calls C calls database calls D calls its own database. You have service A puts a message on a queue. B may read it. B may be interested in it. B may filter on and read that message from, gotcha. the, from that particular topic in Kafka. D may also do the same thing. They may have an audit logging system reading all the messages, for example, for a certain type to write an audit log for users, for example. And this can cause obviously cascading events out through the system. Um, you could have a fairly complex chain of events. Obviously, you want to keep the path fairly short for our own, in the engineer's sanity. Yeah. So that's a that's a key concern. Obviously, you can go for massive long chains. And my previous company, I won't name drop them or anything, but they were quite okay with fairly long chains. Yeah. And I found it increasingly difficult over time to actually understand what the system was doing as we got event A causes B causes C causes D causes F and it just went on and you're like, eventually okay. just, it becomes un uh, incomprehensible. So a key challenge is keeping the path short, but expecting that they may actually branch significantly, which is the main difference between this and sort of um, the model with HTTP based sort of synchronous requests between services. Gotcha. Um, it changes your way of thinking because no longer can you expect a service to, you know, it changes the way you worry about um, database consistency as well, because you worry about it less, but mm -hmm. you still have to obviously worry about it. You don't want an inconsistent state. So you never want that to happen. So you still need to, you know, have your side effects happen, like um, definitely want your side effects to happen correctly. Um, so for example, running a database and that kind of thing. Whereas in a more synchronous system, if it fails, the whole chain will fail. Right, that can cause serious problems. Whereas in an asynchronous system, you may use dead letter queuing, you may retry the message, you may then an engineer may then have to come intervene with the particular service that's broken down, or maybe it's not that important. Maybe you can just drop that message and just say, oh, well, this was a best effort, listen. Yeah. Um, it depends on exactly what the service is doing. So for example, our transaction service would record transactions would obviously absolutely have to write everything to its database as well, because you don't want that to become consistent with the um, event log source gotcha. of truth. Yeah. So yeah, that's it's it's very different, and I can drill down to any specific element you want me to. Um, uh, I'm, but, yeah, yeah, I, I think I'm I'm keen to understand Riyadh, and uh, Glinter was talking about uh, some of those async models and between backend and front end, and how do you actually get involved, or you and the team actually get involved, yeah. and help with that user experience because. That's tough, right? There's a number of different outs there, it seems. So how do you do that? It's a very good question. So this whole idea of eventual consistency, it's not just, uh, well, it can be complicated um, from a back-end perspective, and it can also be fairly compl complicated from a front-end perspective. Fortunately, though, there are, you know, there's a number of off-the-shelf libraries which kind of make the job slightly easier, let's say. Um, yeah. Uh, obviously doing away with much of kind of the restful uh, experiences or restful logic, let's say, as Clinton rightly pointed out there, you know, it, it, this whole idea of uh, eventual consistency, asynchronous data streaming methodologies, it, it, it kind of turns all of that on its head. And you, you, it's more or less pretty much a total inversion of, of the rest paradigm. So the idea being rather than, 
you know, your your front end, your business logic, if you like, uh, the, the, the shop front being the thing that's calling to the guy at the back, asking for different products, uh, but they might not be there yet. Or, or you know, I'm, try, I'm trying to find a decent enough analogy that'll uh, try, try and create some kind of uh, a picture that makes things a bit clearer. But essentially, the, this idea of having um, your back end sending information and your front end observing and listening out for that information. Yeah. Okay. It, it sounds, it sounds potentially quite fraught, but actually I'll tell you what happens if, if once you've got your head around that, and once you kind of pull yourself away from certainly I can, I can absolutely say this from a front end perspective, it is quite different um, kind of conceptually to, to how a lot of people will have been, well, for want of a better way of putting it brought up. Right. So yeah. As a front-end developer, rest you know restful clients, uh, you know single-page web applications which make various requests to the back end and populate perhaps a, you know, a Redux store with the information that they get, and that then you know the front-end having to manage that state and, and you know different bits of data, different blobs of data being pushed into different pages or different parts of an application and updating dynamically. That's all very well and good, but the problem with that is that you have an awful you're baking in an awful lot of uh, potential for harm there into your front end because it's contain it contains a huge amount of business logic. If the data itself um, becomes uh, invalid or out of sync with what you might have in the back end, or if you're not really careful with the way that you you bake in uh, your kind of error hand- handling logic, you can come unstuck pretty quickly. You know, um, okay. whereas doing things this way uh, using kind of a more reactive uh, programming paradigm, um, it gives you a much better level of consistency for to begin with, because you're not having to worry quite so much, let's say, about um, keeping the data in check, because a lot of that data, you know, using things like, for example, RxJS, you can uh, ensure that the front end uh, data store, if you like, for one of putting it a better way, um, the, the the data that's presented to the user in the front end is driven more or less directly from what's available and what's sent to it from the back end. Yeah, and it's that's how I interpret it. That's it, exactly. And so that asynchronous data stream, rather than this constant, can you send me that? Okay, I've got that. I'll display it here. You know, it's, it's a much different way and, and can actually work in a much, whilst it sounds, it sounds very different, can actually allow you to, to, to create a much more maintainable and actually much more approachable uh, application, for, certainly from a development point of view. So I'll give an example of eventual consistency that is something people will actually see in our system. So imagine a user places a trade on our actual front office platform. The back office administrator may not see that trade immediately recorded in the back office system, which may use a different microservice to store a view over that uh, event history. So that's something to, uh, the, so that's a very interesting area where if a user somehow immediately reports the fact they made a trade, the administrator of the system may not see that trade until maybe a few seconds later, maybe minutes, depending on how the intermediate services go. Um, yeah. And to be clear, by the way, the, 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 the databases we're going to be using in these microservices, we're calling them things materialized views. So they are a view over the sort of the sort of event log, over, over the history of all things. So while they are still standard SQL databases for the most part, with maybe some no SQL here and there, um, they are not, like I say, source of truth. They are 
materialized views. Okay. Can we touch on the the ways of working part? Um, just a little bit more because I I know that you guys um, incentivize a, a highly collaborative environment and you want to introduce practices that reflect that as well. Um, so can we talk can we talk about that a little bit more and I guess how you, how you came to the idea of coming to this is the best way to work. So I can give a, a, a sort of a history on it, and then uh, Riyadh can give more of an overview of it. Yeah. So this idea was actually brought. Croak my voice there. This idea was brought to us by Michele actually. Um, he when he sort of uh, stepped up as a CTO and when he was head of engineering, he he's had this idea for a few years. So um, I've known him for some time as well. So this idea, he's been talking about it for years, to be honest as well. And it's something he's worked in before a previous company. Yeah. And he found it very efficient and highly collaborative and a more f fun place to work, actually. So to give a mild description of what, what it is for, for the people who, I'm, who probably don't know at this point, we work in an extreme programming environment where all engineers work in either pairing or mobs throughout the day. There's very little time for an engineer to be sat solo in a corner, hacking away on their keyboard. It's a, it's a very collaborative environment where you're expected to be pairing for the majority of your time at the company. Okay. Um, there is free individual contribution time for things like technical initiatives, self-improvement and everything like that. But for main product engineering work, um, say building a new feature from the company backlog, which by the way, there's only one company backlog and it's a Kanban style max, uh, max one item in progress per team. Yep. And it's, it's prioritized by the, by the product function. So it's very different to your standard feature team set up where you may have a back office team, which is what we used to have. My old team was the back office team yeah. that would build just the back office. We wouldn't help do anything for other teams pretty much as we had to. Um, it was very siloed. We knew everything about our product. We didn't know anything about the other parts of the system. Mm. That's a very narrow view of what everything what was happening in this other rest of the system. But it also led to extreme specialization, which um, it's not, it can be a good thing for some companies. But for our company, which has a single product, and we eventually have two, which we had on and the existing system, yeah. a broader knowledge is actually more valuable than a siloed yeah. knowledge here. For obviously, we have infosec, um, infosec engineers who are just doing their job as infosec engineers, and they're siloed. But they're, they they're not they haven't got as much to work on in one go that each engineer will have. So specialization at that level of just knowing exactly how one microservice works isn't actually that useful for us. Having a broader knowledge of the system spread amongst all engineers is something we cared about. That cultivates so, a culture as well to yes. to work together. If you look at any environment, whether it's product based or not, if you have an environment that I guess incentivizes some sort of collaboration and everyone work together, I think you drive that. Yep. That, that that's quite there, nice to see. There is no my code here. Yeah, that's something that we've basically eliminated, which is the sense of ownership over code. I know. Obviously, you know, I've been an engineer for over a decade and not having your own code can feel a bit daunting if you've never worked in an environment where you don't really own the code. Yeah. But in a way, you don't you don't become the person that has to be at work all the time because your bit of code failed or your bit of code needs modification or your bit of code um, is being replaced and you suddenly feel like I must defend my bit of code. 
Yeah. So it reduces that that massive potential for interpersonal conflict. And it actually equalizes the engineers to a degree. Seniority is still very important, but we've mostly only got senior engineers right now anyway. Yeah. But it, it equalizes not in the sense that everyone's contributions are considered absolutely equal. You know, someone with 20 years experience is very likely to have a more correct set of heuristically will come up with the correct answer more often, but everyone still gets a chance to contribute. And as long as everyone's amicable, then we can come up with a situation where everyone gets to contribute. If they're, if they're wrong or like this, obviously they need some training, then they, the whole team can bring them up to the level they need to be at to understand the problem or understand the solution. Yeah. And it, it's really valuable for everyone from senior to junior. Um, this is pairing mobbing, but also a highly collaborative environment. One more thing that I find really important about it is culture. So okay. the pandemic, which we're going to be talking about a bit later, but I'm going to I'm going to front run this for a little bit. The main benefit to me personally and the team I was running was that before we, ch- we my team changed early. By the way, we we did a bit of a guinea pig trial run of this about two months in advance. The rest of the company, it led to my team being ex- we we were all very new. We basically all new and new new to the company. Yeah. Before that, we barely spoke. And I was the lead. Okay. I, I've only spoke to them in their one to ones and then in the stand ups and any other team meetings. So it led to a fairly isolating feeling um obviously that could be me being a bad manager but there's that's always a possibility right um but um but then as soon as we moved to mobbing it was the team we developed a very strong culture we're all uh, well, the, the the ones that still at the company we're all basically friends i'd say um we really enjoy going to the pub together uh when we can obviously we can't go to the pub now but during that brief interlude where we could go sit in a pub garden we did um nice. and it's led to a you know with without that during COVID, I think I would not know these know the people that I now know as my previous yeah. team. And similarly, I go to all the squads. Riyad and I both sort of move squad regularly. Okay. I now know every engineer in the company. Um, now as the head of engineer, uh, head of back engineering, I know all of the engineers that are relevant to my work, and that's really valuable. You know, um, how how do you spot that you might need a, a model like that? Because there will be there'll be people listening to this thinking maybe that w- that maybe that would work for our company, or I'd actually love to have more knowledge about what's going on in other teams, probably in a different setting. So how do you know when that's right for you, or is it a case of you don't know it's right, you've just got to go and do it? I think do read you yeah yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll dive in very yeah yeah um, I think. So, yeah, I mean, that is a very, very good point. I mean, the thing is, obviously, every single company is different. And, and within that, even, you know, every single team's different. Um, there will inevitably, you know, there will be some circumstances where, you know, you, you, you are you're, you're pretty much working on your own. You know, like I've myself been, I've worked in, you know, been around the block a bit. You know, I've been, <laughs> I've been doing this game for nearly 20, 20 years now. So it's, uh, I'm feeling a bit long in the tooth at times. But, you know, it's... Um, you do find yourself at, at, at uh, in various projects, you know, especially if you are you know, one of two or three developers on a brand new bleeding edge project, you know, you're just needing to get things done. And you kind of almost find yourself kind of falling into this pattern of behavior anyway. Yeah. Um, and that kind of speaks a little bit to, to kind of where we're going with this. Like the thing is when you, when you are needing to get things done, especially in that kind of, you know, uh, especially early on in, in kind of a product's inception, you find yourself working really closely, rapid prototyping on lots of different parts of the of the system, right? Um, 
and and by by default you can't afford at that point you know um to have anyone or or any group of individuals specializing too much because you do need to be able to pivot quite quickly at times and and also you know find yourself in, in a situation where god forbid you know that whole you know person under a bus scenario you know you, you you don't want that one guy who knows that crucial bit the linchpin that holds everything together yeah. to be off on holiday for two weeks and then that one thing to go wrong uh on the first day they're on holiday and everybody else running around crazy trying to fix it you know um so there are lots of good reasons why we've moved to this model um and really i my my kind of fundamental uh reasoning on this my what i would say to people is just try it you know you won't get it honestly because it's it's it i absolutely second everything clinton just said there it's been a fantastic experience for for pretty much all the devs. Um, you know, there's been obviously, you know, there are whenever you have these kind of massive, uh, you know, quite large scale shifts from one uh, paradigm to another or one way of working to another, you will inevitably find. And I can, you know, it's not you know, there is no there's no company on the planet that would be able to do that with absolute smooth sailing without a single glitch. You'll have little bumps in the road. But yeah. once you go over those initial bumps, within the first two, three weeks of us doing this, we found each team individually found really good ways of working. And all of this, by the way, much of it done remote, remotely, right? So we're doing this day in, day out. We're, we're working collaboratively, not just within the teams, but outwardly as well within the rest of the company. You know, yeah. I, I, on any given day, I can be speaking with somebody from uh, compliance, about something to do with Gamstop. I'll then be talking to the UX guy about how we're going to be uh, representing that in the UX. I'll then go and talk to one of the dev teams and, and kind of consider architecturally how we're going to be putting that together. Yeah. And then I'll discuss it with product to make sure that everything that we've just discussed makes sense. Um, and we all, you know, the, the collaboration efforts and, and kind of the way that we work, it, it all underpins that same thing, which is basically trying to encourage that we can make the most of our own experience, our own expertise, and get the most out of each and every one of us. Uh, I can sense, yeah, sorry, Clinton, I can sense the dynamic between you both, actually, uh, as well. Just talking to you both, I can sense that that collaborative dynamic, um, even offline as well, which which I think is really important when working together. Um, That's nice to see. And even touching on some of those points around de-risking, um, spreading dependency to other people. It's yeah. it's probably quite a useful mechanism, not just in tech, but generally, yeah. like I said. So I yeah. do have an addendum as well. I think there's a, a heuristic I would go with to decide if you want to use this method is, if you do want to go, a fe- if you have feature teams or you're thinking about going a feature teams, i.e. a team dedicated to either a feature or a product team to a product, can is the work for that team going to be enough to make sure that team is always busy and are the and the same is true for all the other teams if the answer is potentially no that team may run out of work or may have too much work and need to spread to other teams then yeah. you're going to find yourself in the same situation we did where the teams had load that changed based on the product requirements which is not if you think about it that's a very bad design from an engineering perspective as well if your load is so like you, one team can fail over when they get too much load then you've got a bad design 
Um, I think it's very similar for the teams in this case. So we had a trading tools team and a back office team. And I'll pick these two, for example. Back office team often had more load when trading tools had load. But the team called uh, new businesses load often went down in those cases because the amount of onboarding, onboarding became less of a focus during the increased trading focus stuff. Yeah. So these two teams became really busy. In fact, no, the other team um, uh, transactions became even busier, actually. We had all these failovers where teams were spilling out and we were borrowing members. And we realized that we were acting sort of the way that we are now, but inefficiently, where you had to go to a tech lead and ask them for permission to borrow an engineer. And it was obvious that it was wrong and delivery was slow and features wouldn't get delivered teams would take on more than 10 items at a time sometimes my team was guilty of that because product not product um, i don't put blame on anybody in particular but the pressure on that team that couldn't actually scale up got higher and higher as they stopped they couldn't deliver more and more so they yeah. take on more tasks we seem to be doing more and nothing would get delivered Right. Yeah. I will admit that my team did not deliver as much as it could have because of these situations. And, yeah. you know, I, I look back on it and I, I moved to the new model willingly the moment I could move to the new model because I recognized that it wasn't working. Yeah, because the load on each individual part of our product, feature areas really, was just completely inconsistent. And not because there's anything wrong with the product, but because that's it's a single product company, right? And one feature may put a massive pressure on one area. So this new model just allows us to scale up. And I think for anyone who's in that situation where you've got a team named, I don't know, like I say, back office, that team, if they're overloaded or underloaded, then think maybe you've got a problem with your um, ability to scale your teams up and down. Moving engineers around isn't super efficient either. Yeah. It's better yeah. to spread the knowledge out. Well, yeah. If I can touch a little bit on the product side of things as well there, like one of the, one of the, one of the things that really struck me, actually, when, when I first joined, because I, I joined right kind of in the thick of it when, when things were exactly as Tintin rightly says, you know, and I, I was kind of firsthand, you know, witnessing the same, same kind of problems. Um, and when we started talking about, um, you know, Clinton rightly says, you know, his team kind of were, were the forebears to this, but when, when it was kind of brought to the rest of the teams um, and it was started to be discussed with them, um, the business, I have to say, did a fantastic job in terms of taking ownership of it and going through with it. You know, like one of the biggest problems that I've witnessed time and again in so many other companies and so many other projects is that you have these teams of individuals who are working, you know, very, very hard. And in many ways, sometimes being, you, you could argue, overworked because they're having to work all the hours that God gives to commit to unrealistic deadlines, yeah. which are kind of mandated upon them. Right. Um, and that's no good because you end up in, in some pretty hairy situations where you get staff turnover. And of course, that in those kind of, in that kind of environment where you have that very sure. specialized team, the second you meet, the second you drop on one or two people per team, immediately, you know, that team, they can't deliver. But nobody else can either because they depend on that work. Yeah. And, and it kind of becomes this vicious circle. So the, what the business agreed to. Um, it took quite a lot of bravery, really, on their part because it's it was a you know a fairly significant shift. Yeah. Um, but what we've what we've arrived at is I I have to say much better for all concerned. Our throughputs much increased. Um, the stability of the platform itself has increased because our engineers all have a much better understanding of the entirety of the system. Yeah. Um, product themselves feel much happier and much more able. Uh, and much more willing to kind of work in that to and fro capacity. You know, the, the, the collaboration has increased dramatically between different parts of the business. 
Um, but also, actually, we, we've even been able to start chipping away at some of that tech debt, you know, and some of the, not that we, you know, not that I would advertise it necessarily, but we all have it. You know, every yeah. single technical team, you have tech debt. Um, yeah. If you've been working on a project for any longer than a month, you have tech debt, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and finding some way of justifying being, being able to address that when you have, you know, paying customers and, and, and uh, arguably, you know, this isn't, you know, one might be able to say if you're from a business centric point of view, you know, how is this adding value? Well, it's not, but it's ensuring that you have a stable platform, which adds value later, you know, and they understood that crucially. Yeah. Uh, every, at every single level, we've seen vast improvements since we've moved to this model. It's been really good, really good. Can, can I be quite dim? Where, where does master-based development fit into this? Because we, we spoke about this offline. You may be talking about um, some of what this is, but I come from the angle of I don't know, and that's obviously why I'm asking. So this is kind of the package of extreme programming in a way. I, I, I'm not entirely sure exactly what extreme program mandates because I, I just don't. But um, it kind of came with the package. So this model again doesn't necessarily require push to master. These things were all chosen as new ways of working to tr okay. un completely change our direction. We we basically went around a corner in terms of direction orthogonal. There was nothing, almost nothing remained the same apart from the, like our IDs pretty much and yeah. Git. Um, so that. It's, it's it's not it's not related basically. Um, the thing about master trunk based master based. I want to call it master based, but trunk based is I think the more standard term. Yeah. So with master based development, um, it it kind of felt like going backwards to when I was sort of more junior and younger and less experienced. And yeah, I'll just push everything to master. Why not? I, it doesn't matter. If it breaks in production, we'll fix it. And then obviously I sort of moved to London and started working in the London tech industry. And obviously, then obviously, you can't do that. It has to have a pull request. It has to have a review. It has to have all of these sort of things that make sure that there's gates between you and production. Yeah. So, and then when Michele again came to us um, and told us about this model, I went, no, I don't think that will work. Um, obviously, he convinced me, and it, it was more of a let's try and see how it works, actually. <laughs> so, on my team, we guinea picked that as well. And we found very quickly that we went. To production more often we were more correct we, we sorry requirements were more quickly filtered through and um product could see the results more quickly we didn't need to have long release cycles where we had to wait for you know teams to orchestrate different parts of the system together uh as we orchestrate there maybe a bit confusing in the jargon there but um collaborate to make well collaborate is the wrong word let me try to find the right word for this teams didn't have to spend a lot of time organizing their dependencies around releases yeah your team would be working on one feature which is the other thing we just talked about but you'd also be pushing to master every what five minutes 10 minutes 30 minutes your code would already be there behind a feature flag of course really important don't do this without feature flags if you do you're going to be in a world of pain um, and ensure that this, this this changes in two kind of ways one you obviously get the faster feedback cycle on your code working your test passing um, you can turn things feature flags on and off for different environments and you know, allow faster feedback from QA, from product. But there's a separate separate thing is when your code will only see feature flagged and ready to be production ready all the time, as in not like two hours or two days down the line, but two minutes down the line. Yeah. You've got to build things extremely modularly, extremely sort of carefully mm -hmm. and correct the first time. I don't mean correct in the sense of no bugs. I mean, no hacks where possible. Avoid hacks, avoid sort of 
those kinds of things. I mean, you can get away with them here and there, but it really promotes a, you know, I'm not just going to add another field to this sort of uh, object. I need to think about what the impact of adding this field to this object is going to be. Is it going to change the API? Is okay. it going to break interfacing with other services? This is this is more in our current system. I mean, Hadron is all the very same concerns, but with the uh, orchestration in mind, as opposed to um, and, uh, as opposed to, I've forgotten the word for it now. Um, give me two seconds here. Orchestration versus um, oh no, choreography versus orchestration. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I forget these terms. I don't use them normally. I usually, usually just say uh, microservice HTTP based. But so you you have to worry about every step what your changes are going to do. I say worry, think about. Yeah. It's important to know what your, ch your changing impact. And I have seen too, too often in my career, from myself a long time ago, and also from many other people since, a lack of attention to detail, a lack of care about the change. You yep. know it's going to work in your head. You push it to your pull request. The person looks at it. They kind of go, I think it's going to work too. Approve, passes the test that you wrote, yep. right? That it comes yep. from your assumptions, and yep. then eventually makes it into release endpoint N, uh, endpoint M, Boom, and it goes to production, it fails, right? Okay. Um, and then you got to roll back the release, or you've got to make a, a hot fix, or you've got to do all these other things. You've got now you've got those um, production uh, issue raising from one of the people in IT support or thing, and you know it ends up a whole mess. Um, this way around, your changes are constantly validated. You're constantly what's happening, and the, the, when you turn the changes on, is decoupled from when the engineers are necessarily working on the work a little bit as well. So you can turn that feature flag on. The, when you're working on it, or maybe months down the line, right? It depends on when that feature needs to be released. This also then decouples engineering from deadlines, because gotcha. in the past we've had issues where deadlines have caused engineers to burn themselves at both ends, as it were, right? Burn the cat yeah. at both ends. It, it was, you know, it's, it's miserable doing what we. What I've personally called uh, crunch time because I came from the game industry originally, but I think death march is a term I heard at my previous company. Um, no one likes those. We we've basically eliminated those. I think we completely eliminated them. But before we change this new way, some of the big releases of new features, I think um, offers and bids, I think were the main two I remember personally, okay. where we had to work late, very late, and get up very early to make sure that our work was ready to be released, um, all the releases were done, um, all the dependencies were correct. But now we don't worry about that. You get your code behind the feature flag, QA tests it by toggling the feature flags on or off where they need to in the right environments, and then it should be releasable without the engineering team needing to be sitting there with hands braced, worrying, like, is it going to fail? Is it going to fail? So that's, and that's more than just trunk-based development, but I think all these things come together in like a, like a spider web of, you know, yeah, it seems like coming it. together. On their own, they're all valuable, but I've seen master-based development actually not work because it wasn't done in conjunction with these other things. Yep. So yeah, there's, there's sort of an orchestration here as it were. Um, with each other. Okay, that's interesting. And this is a little bit aside from um, what, what you've cultivated together, but listening to what you were talking about with um, the culture, beers in the summer when you could, um, how has coronavirus affected the business in terms of sport? It doesn't take a rocket scientist, obviously, to work out what happened with sport last summer, um, but also culture. What, what What's it done for you? And how have you been able to adapt and, I think, continue those ways of working away from each other? I can talk a little bit about that. So I, I think yeah, 
in terms of, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's a bit of a, yeah, it's the elephant in the room in almost every business conversation, isn't it? When you start talking about how people are working um, and working remotely and, and COVID, it all kind of comes hand in hand. You're absolutely right to point it out. It is, I mean, it's had a, a massive impact on, you know, the, the, the entire globe, really. I think from our purely talking selfishly, I suppose, for a moment, from my, my own perspective, and my own experience, um, I mean, I was pri- previously, I, I've been contracting for a good number of years. Um, I joined here in May, which is, uh, you know, not, not that far into uh, uh, lockdown number one, as it, uh, as, it, as it was at the time. Um, I was kind of remote, uh, onboarded remotely, 100% remotely. Um, <laughs> I, I, I say this to everybody I can because I found it almost almost unbelievable, quite astonishing. It's pretty much the most seamless onboarding I've ever had. I was I was pretty much onboarded in a day, which when I compare it to other, you know, I've, I won't name names, but I've worked in some very large media companies over the years and newspaper companies over the years. And it, it's- um, You got onboarded you know, for a year. It takes it, yeah, <laughs> it takes it two weeks to even get, a, you know, a, a, a terminal access, for example. It's, you know, it's nightmarish at times. So for me, for me to have that kind of really, I had a I had a laptop on my desk day one, um, got a few bits installed. I was up and running, developing, and because of the way the system's written, um, which I have to say, you know, it, it obviously, you know, every system has has its areas of fault, but I, as a rule of thumb, very well written, brilliantly, um, and so I was able to kind of start work pretty much by. About two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon on day one, nice. which was fantastic, you know, um, and and pretty much the very first time that had ever happened to me, to be honest. Um, and and that's all down to you know the, the the I suppose obviously you know the the guys who run the tech side of things they do they do a fantastic job there, but HR also do a brilliant job here, you know, with Index Labs. They they work tirelessly to make sure that we have standard onboarding processes and protocols in place so that when people start. You know they've got the right documentation to get up and up and up and running. Um, you know when uh, Clinton was mentioning, you know we we, we had a, a short period where you know the everybody was uh, allowed, let's say in inverted commas, to you know government was opening the doors and allowing everybody out again after that first lockdown. Um, and HR again, they did a fantastic job of making sure the office was safe and everybody was well looked after. Um, and you do, I you know, I'll say this. Um, uh, just purely, again, per, from a personal perspective, I did really genuinely feel well looked after. Like I felt yeah. like they genuinely cared, which is, again, take it or leave it, but from my own experience, it's quite rare, you know, to have that. Um, from a wider business perspective, how has coronavirus or, or you know, COVID affected us? I mean, yes, obviously, you know, we, we are fundamentally a sports betting company, um, but actually it hasn't impacted us as much as you might think. Um I mean, we have a very loyal and stable uh, uh, customer base. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're very enthusiastic. I mentioned that earlier on. You know, they have entire you know YouTube channels devoted themselves to this, which are completely unrelated to us. Um, and they have built their own platforms on you know being successful using Football Index. Their um, own APIs as well. Their own, yeah, exactly. Their own APIs, and, and uh, again, you know, I could name drop. I, I probably shouldn't, but there are a good number of very, very loyal customers that we have, which we, again, we are very thankful for. Um, and and they've just kept things going, really. And we've we've because of the media mentions, 
Um, I think I did touch on it very briefly earlier on. We have media yeah. dividends. So even though football itself, you know, match day play was, was uh, postponed, let's say, for a good long while, the platform was able to continue and people were still buying and selling shares. We were still able to play, you know, pay dividends, um, albeit, you know, using these these media mentions. Um, so it's proved we are the, the coronavirus situation has proved to be less impactful on us, certainly than it, it would have been. No, I'm sure to a good number of our competitors. We've been or quite to, lucky, to be honest. Yeah, that. very. Yeah. Nice. Good. If if we bunch everything together, you guys at the start um, probably until about halfway through gave us some real good technical insight into um, different architectures, ways of working. If we're to bunch that together and succinctly um, drop down to someone in regards to what it's like to be an engineer at Football Index or Index Labs um, and some of those, if you like, key messages on what you'll work on, can you help do that? And we can round that off quite nicely in that way. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I can, I can jump in and I'm sure Clinton will have his own story as well. Certainly. I mean, I, yeah, I, I did, I, I, I don't want to kind of repeat myself too much, but I suppose from my perspective, the journey for me has been, um, a very positive one. Like I started here, I mentioned, you know, nine, nine months ago, uh, around May during lockdown, very uncertain times, you know, every, everybody was unsure, you know, in terms of what we had ahead of us. Um, but I was vet, I felt extremely welcomed. The people, all the guys here, uh, you know, all the people here, they, they all collaborate brilliantly. We all work really well. We all know each other very well now. Um, and even, and that's even with us all, you know, kind of working remotely. We use you know, Zoom, Google Meet, screen.so, code share. We use various different, you know, the developers and, and the architects all use very different, uh, uh, use various uh, coding plugins. Um, in our editors to be able to collaborate and, and, and share our coding. Um, I think ov overwhelmingly for me throughout my career, I've felt, um, you know, there's been very few places where I have genuinely felt well looked after and where there has been as good a camaraderie, if I can say it, yeah, yeah. Um, as there right. is here. Um, people do care about each other and we get on really well. So, good. yeah, overwhelmingly positive. Yeah, Clinton, if, if people are going to be AWS out of their ears or GCP through their bones or whatever, what, what could someone touch if they're listening thinking, I love that, that sounds quite cool. Just give us a bit of insight, the, the tech insight, let's just say, if we summarize what we were talking about initially. Sure. Can I just have two seconds to do something? Of course well, you can. My cat is meowing like crazy. Come on in. <laughs> I, can't, I can't talk with her doing that. No, so no, there's no, not going to be a cat in the background. Way. What's the cat's name? Kitty. Kitty. Kitty yeah. Hello, Kitty. She's uh, curious about the fact I reorganized the room for this. So uh, <laughs> only very slightly, but moved all the rubbish out of the way. So um, so tech insight um, in terms of how it is to work here in terms of tech. So. Yeah. I, th I think just briefly bunched together some of the stuff that we spoke about at the start, as in someone's got some of those key messages and they think, bang, that's for me. Okay, so what it's like to work here. It's quite interesting. So obviously at the moment we're rebuilding our platform. Well, I say rebuilding. As I said earlier, it's not a rebuild, it's a new product. So we've got two ongoing products. 
we've got three squads, I believe, working on. I think it's three, right? We had. Correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, yes, it is three squads. Yes. Yeah. Three squads on the old product and one squad on Hadron. That yeah, will eventually yeah. change as Hadron grows in size and and therefore, you know, has more room for people to build on it. Um, and the old product will become more maintainable, and then people will be offboarded, uh, so offboarded, offloaded. I don't know from that product. So. The, the world, the landscape is changing every day. So right now, engineers will be working in a mix of Kotlin, Node.js, and Java. Nice. Um, obviously, I have a vested interest as a Kotlin fan on bringing that more towards Kotlin, even in our old system. So anything we can rewrite in Kotlin, we do, um, where possible, where time permits. Um, otherwise, it's Node.js. Yeah. Uh, the Node.js is, uh, you know, as I said, a monolith. It's not the best written code in the world. But we obviously, work, we have a, a principle of uh, the Boy Scout rule. I, I didn't know everyone didn't know this term, but apparently, uh, for people who don't know it, the Boy Scout rule is um, sort of clean up as you go along. Um, in engineering terms, it's if you can quickly refactor something, fix it, um, build on it, improve it, do it. Okay. Right? Don't don't like upgrade dependencies as you go past a service. Don't just leave it on Kotlin 1.1, bring it to Kotlin 1.4.10, I think it is, or yeah. you know, a node, the newest node version. Um, or any other dependency like Mike Knorr or any others. So it's we have a very big principle around constant improvement of not just the code, but people, processes, practices. Um, you know, keeping software up to date as much as possible. Um, so that's that's a that's that's something that massively impacts you as an engineer here. Uh, in terms of the tech as well, we follow functional programming, design, uh, domain-driven design, hexagonal architecture. Um, just to explain, obviously, functional programming. I probably don't need to explain that one. But we do tend to go, we go with a, the Kotlin flavor of functional programming. So if you don't know what that is, it's um, Kotlin's a multi-paradigm language. So it has object-oriented fundamental built in, as, but more so it's more functional oriented. But it's not as extremely functional as, say, Haskell or F-sharp. But it's not anywhere near as object-oriented as uh, uh, Java or C-sharp. Yeah. Well, the C-sharp has apparently improved a lot since I last used it. So I'm not going to. <laughs> comment on that any further actually um so that's a big part of the sort of paradigm as so we're moving towards more functional um you know pure functions are preferred by possible we like um immutability uh, mutability is really important for keeping yeah. the system integral for reducing bugs um relying more heavily on the type system than you'd expect so okay. for any functional program probably just said duh but for those who are not functional seeing things like string 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 in the type signature is no 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 to me right it's we don't do that if we can avoid it um we then we have a sort of um domain driven design hexagonal architecture I'll, I'll go on hexagonal architecture first so for those unfamiliar the, the hexagon in this uh analogy isn't really a six-sided shape it's an any-sided shape so you view a microservice less well you view a microservice as having edges um inbound and outbound or driven and driving depending on your particular preference terminology i prefer inbound outbound so inbound is anything sort of coming into service which um causes a service to do something and outbound is anything that the service does to something else like side effects or you know ongoing ongoing information so an inbound would be a web api call in or a kafka consumer in okay. right so that's an inbound edge and those tend to drive hence the driven the, the driving terminology drive the system to do something if the system is uh, stateless by the way these are all stateless very important if the systems are stateless then they're not doing anything if there's nothing happening to their inbound edges, that's very important as well. If they're not, if they're doing something without an inbound edge, then you need to make an inbound edge do that. Otherwise, it's not hexagonal, and it's probably not a well-designed microservice, in my opinion. And outbound edges are calling another service via HTTP or sending a Kafka message to a topic. 
um, similarly writing to a database, writing to Redis, that kind of thing. And no. reading from them as well, by the way. I forgot to mention reading from databases, also you're calling out to another service. So outbound doesn't mean sending messages necessarily, but it means you're driving the other service. Um, yes. The edges are driven in that case. And that leads you to think, seeing a microservice or a bigger service is how many edges do I have in this service? You don't want too many. I've heard a good, Michele believes it's three. I actually kind of agree. You know, you have one inbound, maybe two outbounds, depending on, you know, if it's a processor, it might write to a database, send a message on and receive a message. If it gets more than five, six, seven, you got to ask yourself, is this really two microservices? Is there a line down here which I can split it and break it out into a service? Nice. Um, we really we don't go nano service by the way. So I've heard you know criticisms of microservices being how do you define a microservice? I think hexagon architecture gives you a really good foundation to start that discussion with numbers and heuristics. So the number of edges is a good starting place for your heuristics towards designing microservices. One second. I was going to say no. Uh, that that is good content on interesting architectures, interesting languages, paradigms ways of working i think if if you are listening lots of people do listen um over the last uh 14 15 months you know we've got 1250 lovely people that follow us uh, i just want to say a, a big thanks for for you to come to join us and talk to us a little bit about what you're doing um guys and girls please get in touch with uh, Riyadh, Clinton, if you want to drop Kitty a message as well, we've got Kitty in the background, um, then please drop them a message on LinkedIn and they'll get back in touch if you're interested in joining the guys and girls. But chaps, I just want to say a big thank you. Such good content. And if there's any blogs or where we can come and follow you, that would be awesome. I do really appreciate that. Thanks, Elliot. Excellent. Thanks. Really that. Thank you. Pleasure. And guys from Engineers, bye for now. Hey, guys. Thanks for watching this episode. Uh, massively appreciate you listening and checking in with us. If you want to find out more about us and what we're doing, please check us out on social media. What we're trying to do at Engineers is build a community to drive knowledge sharing and experiences. On Twitter, we can be found at Engineers.io. It's no underscore. We've also got a website which is engineers.io. These links will all be posted in the description. Any feedback and comments are massively appreciated. We're always looking to improve on where we can. Thanks, guys.